Hello, and welcome back to Stuck in the Middle Kingdom with you. I'm Adam, an English teacher who went to China in 2014 and taught English in a small city near Shanghai. This podcast tells the story of my troubled first year, so if you're new to the show, I'd encourage you to start at the beginning. That said, alongside the main story, many episodes focus much more on other issues about Chinese history and culture, and you don't really need to be following the story to listen to that part. Okay, on with the show. Previously on Stuck in the Middle Kingdom with you, a couple of episodes back, we briefly met Mao Zedong, whose ambition to catch up to the West led him to develop the atom bomb, which was successful, and rapidly industrialize, which led to a huge famine. Today, we look at his comrade Deng Xiaoping, who became paramount leader soon after Mao's death, and turbocharged the economy in a way that Mao never could, in a way that Mao would never want to. From the moment the Communist Party came to power in 1949, the outside world was largely shut off. The unequal trade treaties imposed in the 19th century by colonial countries are never far from the surface in the Chinese mindset. So you wouldn't blame China for wanting to do it their own way. Mostly, however, it didn't go well, and in the 1970s, new leader. Deng Xiaoping, following to some degree in the footsteps of previous Premier Zhou Enlai, opened China up to the world. It's called the Gaige Kaifeng policy, or reform and opening up. Deng was a communist veteran who'd been around since the genesis of Chinese communism. He'd been on the fabled Long March, been a top military politician during the years of struggle against the Japanese, become central to Mao's project. After the defeat of the Chinese nationalists, when the country's rebirth was announced in 1949, in 1961, Deng had said something controversial: "Doesn't matter whether the cat is black or white, if it catches mice, it's a good cat." This was controversial because it sounded like a fig leaf was being handed out to evil capitalism, a recognition of the fact that cats in the West were hungrily devouring mice everywhere. Deng could get away with it at that particular time. Because Mao's ideas had lost a certain charm after that huge famine, but he didn't get away with it for long. When Mao fired the gun on the Cultural Revolution in 1966, initiated to weed out capitalist inclinations amongst the people, shore up his own power base, Deng was one of those to be purged. Mao's Red Guards, students radicalized with Maoist ideology, targeted Deng's family, and his son was paralyzed after a fall from a three-story window. The circumstances of which remain murky to this day. Deng was exiled to the countryside, patiently kept his head down working in a tractor factory, waiting for the chance to make a comeback. President Liu Xiaoqi also offered to resign, become a peasant. After making remarks displeasing to the great helmsman, he was the man who'd returned to his home village during the Great Leap Forward, saw firsthand the carnage and suffering caused by Mao's policies. In 1962, he said, "The economic disaster was 30% fault of nature, 70% human error." And which human did he have in mind? You guessed it, 
天上太阳红啊红，通通哎，心中的太阳冒着红啊。Mao diligently noted Liu's unhelpful comments, as he had with Deng, and stored them away for another time. It was probably Mao's perceived threat of Liu which led him to initiate the Cultural Revolution. Mao didn't want his legacy ripped apart in the way that Khrushchev had done for Stalin over in the USSR. In 1966, Liu and Deng were labelled capitalist roaders, and they lost their political positions. Was a sharp fall for two revolutionaries who were among Mao's oldest allies, but Liu didn't have the luck that Deng had. Liu's offer to quietly disappear was rejected, and he was placed under house arrest. Propaganda posters directed fury at him, students chanted slogans at him, and his home was covered in insulting big-character posters. Mao's wife Jiang Qing harassed Liu's wife. Having her publicly humiliated on camera at struggle sessions, husband and wife were kept in separate solitary confinement, only brought out for denunciation meetings and phony court rulings, where Liu endured beatings as his children watched. Liu Xiaoqi's wife was called Wang Guangmei. She was charged with being a spy for America, Japan, and the Chinese nationalists based in Taiwan. Almost all of China's adversaries at once. Quite a claim. Their family was also targeted and imprisoned. Liu himself was kept just beyond the reach of death, malnourished and deprived of medication in his home, long enough for a case to be concocted against him so that he could be officially thrown out of the party. He was finally labelled a traitor, spy, and scab. Mao rejected capital punishment, instead preferring for Liu to die slowly, an ordeal that finished on the twelfth of November, nineteen sixty-nine. The public didn't find out about his death until after Mao was gone, almost a decade later. Wang found out about her husband's death four years after the event. Their last encounter was at a struggle session, one of the rare occasions that the couple were together after their persecution began. As Jun Chang put it in her book, Mao: The Unknown Story, at one point, Guang Mei tore free and clung to a corner of her husband's clothes. For a few minutes, under a rain of kicks and punches. The couple held each other's hands tight, struggling to stand up straight. The luckier of the two revolutionary outcasts, Deng Xiaoping, after biding his time in the countryside, managed to secure his re-entry into power. He was brought back by Mao himself to help run things after Mao's chosen successor died during the Cultural Revolution. But in the tumultuous power struggles which characterized the era, Deng was purged once again after Premier Zhou Enlai died. In 1976, it was Deng who had the last laugh, though, because he was back in time to tussle for the top spot after Mao died later that year. He posthumously rehabilitated Liu Xiaoqi, released his wife Wang Guangmei from prison, locked up his political opponents, and set China onto the path which has delivered such prosperity. In modern Chinese law, the genesis for economic change occurred one wintry night in 1978, when 18 families of a tiny village in Anhui Province met, and in violation of the strict regulations of the time, agreed to split their commune into family plots. The farmers made an agreement with the local cadres that anything they produced over the quota was theirs to sell on the market. This was flat out illegal, 
with potentially fatal risks attached. But it did bring good results. When the farmer's cunning came to light, the pragmatic dung gave his seal of approval. It became known as the Household Responsibility System. And Xiaogang Anhui was the model village of Chinese capitalism. Eventually, Dung would meet with such right-wing titans as Richard Nixon and Margaret Thatcher, enjoy a state visit to the USA and visit the Coca-Cola headquarters. He was saved from being assassinated by a member of the US Secret Service. Ironic considering that the US's CIA was touring the world eliminating socialist leaders wherever it could. America was clearly sold on Deng Xiaoping. And the result of Deng's liberalization was huge national economic growth, with China firmly behind the capitalist wheel and the party doing the driving. It was Deng's final victory over his on-off comrade Mao. His persecution had seen him denounced, exiled into peasantry, his children tortured, and some paralyzed. It may sound hypocritical, but China's frolic with capitalism isn't altogether against communist theory. Karl Marx himself said that communism resulted from the contradictions of capitalism. It was finally reasoned that the country can't really enjoy communism without first enduring capitalism. And endurance has never looked so comfortable. Competition and desire, the great drivers of capitalism, are thriving. Millions are being dragged out of poverty to make money for their bosses. While some companies like KFC, Apple and Disney are visible additions to China's corporate landscape, Protectionism means that native companies are favoured. In some sectors, foreign businesses are required to team up with local companies, and this approach has enabled homegrown companies to thrive. Taobao, which is China's Amazon, Didi, China's Uber, WeChat, which is China's WhatsApp on steroids, and Baidu, China's Google, can all thank Beijing's policymakers for their relatively uncompetitive access to a billion or so consumers. Intellectual copyright is also disregarded where it benefits Chinese firms, and a little help from Beijing's hackers aids the effort in bringing cutting-edge technology to China. As does Beijing's demand that foreign companies hand over tech secrets in order to enjoy its market. Fused with the Chinese people's famous entrepreneurial spirit, and you have an economic boom of historical proportions. A special shout-out at this point has to go to Taiwan's business leaders, who, as Shelley Rigger explains in her recent book, The Tiger Leading the Dragon, came to the PRC in the 80s and 90s, having already been part of Taiwan's economic boom, one of the so-called four Asian tigers, along with South Korea, Singapore and Hong Kong. As production costs went up in Taiwan, many moved to China, and with them came business practices and consultancy which aided China's economic rise. The indispensable tech giant Foxconn is the largest and most well-known of these Taiwanese imports, hiring some 15 million Chinese alone. While many Western tech companies are barred from China for refusing to play by Beijing's rules, Microsoft is one company that's done things differently. They set up shop in China in 1992 and have 17,000 partners there. They proudly state that for every RMB that Microsoft earns in China, Microsoft partners earn 16. That kind of statistic might sound good when the partners are local companies in, say, sub-Saharan Africa. But when it's America's number one strategic rival, well, some will raise an eyebrow. But it's meant that Microsoft can continue to earn money while Google has been frozen out. LinkedIn, owned by Microsoft, 
continued working there, and you can use the Bing search engine. In late 2021, seven years since setting up its Chinese website and saying reassuring things about disagreeing with government censorship, LinkedIn started blocking journalists from its China-based website. Didn't want to explain why. Then, in October, they decided to pull out of China altogether. Yahoo pulled out not long after, citing the increasingly stringent regulations being imposed from above. But in the search engine world, Microsoft's Bing already complies with Beijing's request to censor search results. So don't expect to get many history lessons if you search for, say, Tiananmen Square, June 4th, 1989. And Bing maps show the world through Beijing's eyes. Taiwan is just another Chinese province, and Chinese territory follows the famous nine-dash line all the way down to Malaysia. As it's become evident that Beijing won't back down, Google has been re-evaluating its position, and in recent years has been toying with the idea of launching a censored search engine in China, to get into that delicious market once again. Be careful what you wish for, Google, because, as their rivals at Microsoft will tell them, kowtowing to China doesn't necessarily mean getting an easy ride. In March 2021, Microsoft accused Chinese state-sponsored spies of hacking its systems. China's response was contemptuous. There's no debate anymore about who's the boss here. And that's the kind of attitude you can have when you're backed up with supreme economic heft. And that's all thanks to Deng Xiaoping. Deng Xiaoping's term for the new economy he built was socialism with Chinese characteristics. The West referred to it, cynically but no doubt accurately, as state capitalism. The three big telecommunication companies are state-owned, as are all utilities and the four big banks. Private companies can operate schools and hospitals for the growing elite, but where they provide better services than state-run versions, generally due to a smaller number of users and hence a smaller burden. The assumption that's been central to economic orthodoxy in the West, that the state can't run things effectively and everything needs to be privatised, we definitely have it in the US and UK, well, this assumption is disproved entirely by China's economic success. You'd have thought that China's ideological leaders would stop complaining when the big bags of cash started piling up. And surely some did. But ideological battles continue, and have been more divisive than in, say, Vietnam, another nominally communist state. A few years before his death in 1997, Deng Xiaoping went on a tour of the south of China, not to enjoy the famous cuisine of the area once more, but to put his seal of approval onto the opening up agenda that he had instigated. The symbolism was unmistakable. With economic growth running at 10%, many at the top of Chinese politics were still bemoaning the capitalist tendencies, but Deng was shunning the critics. China's most recent leader, Xi Jinping, explaining why China can have it both ways, more recently said, For a fairly long time yet, socialism in its primary stage will exist alongside a more productive and developed capitalist system. In this long period of cooperation and conflict, socialism must learn from the boons that capitalism has brought to civilization. Xi is the most powerful Chinese leader since Mao. He even has his own doctrine, Xi Jinping thought. It's taught in universities. It features on the walls in primary schools. He extends Deng's principles of opening up, but further centralises all forms of economic and social life in the hands of the party and himself, enforcing his discipline through crackdowns on opponents, human rights lawyers, basically anyone who ruffles his feathers. 
In 2021, alongside other reforms designed to stop tech companies get too powerful or harmful, his government decreed that children will only be allowed to play video games between 8 and 9pm on Fridays and weekends and holidays. Tech companies will use face recognition to enforce the rules. A movement to restrict the depiction of effeminate men on TV and in games has also been rolled out, as Beijing decides what is and isn't appropriate for its citizens. Whether or not the Chinese people want this tiger mom president deciding people's lifestyle choices, they're going to have to get used to it, because she has abolished the rule that the leader can't serve more than two terms, so he's here to stay. One of the hot topics among China observers is whether Xi's centralization of power makes the party stronger or weaker in the medium term. Handovers often become tricky in such situations. It's something that will have consequences far beyond the borders of China itself. The debate of how socialist, communist or capitalist China is might continue at the top, but it doesn't really concern people if my experience is anything to go by. The Chinese are no different to anyone else in that they want security and personal growth. And China's success has shown even the poorest of the rural poor that, even if the big money remains elusive, a better future is there for the taking. Cheap labour and exports have fueled huge growth and a massive sense of opportunity in China. Although income inequality has rocketed and now approximates that of the USA. The name of the currency in China, renminbi, means people's currency. but very few of them get a real share of the wealth, and this hasn't gone unnoticed. Resentment towards the urban elite spills out online and in neighbourhood disputes between locals and Waidira, or migrant workers from other towns. Entrepreneurs like to say that their companies are run by the people. Public figures talk about the people so much, sometimes seems that they're obliged to meet a quota. But the public-private relationship in China is ultimately good for business leaders, and for those at the top of the party through which everything, money included, goes. Indeed, these are often the same people. In 2017, CNBC reported that some 100 delegates in the Chinese parliament are US dollar billionaires. People such as the CEOs of search engine Baidu, tech company Tencent, and smartphone producer Xiaomi. All eyes are on Xi and his so-called Red New Deal as to whether this coziness continues or whether Beijing sees the inequality and the shifting power towards tech companies as issues which risk its own power. If so, they'll be reined in. Simple as that. When Deng Xiaoping took power, he surrounded himself with other old guard communists who'd suffered during the Cultural Revolution. They were the Eight Elders, or the Eight Immortals, and indeed they are immortalised in the lives of their children, who were primed for political careers since birth. The realities of nepotism in circles of power and wealth are built right into the modern Chinese language. The rich children of Deng's entrepreneurial generation are known as Fu Ardai. Kids of government officials are known as Guan Ardai. One infamous incident relating to a Guan Ardai youth was that of Li Qiming, whose reckless driving at his university led to the injury of one female student and the death of another. The first thing he said after causing this accident was, My father is Li Gang, the local deputy security official. This comment was seen by many as summing up the sense of entitlement and exceptionalism that this second generation enjoys. And Xi Jinping is part of the Hong Ardai, the red second generation, 
a child of one of the communist revolutionary forefathers, now occupying the inner ring of political power. Xi's father, Xi Zhongshun, was one of Deng's eight elders who, like Deng himself, had been removed from his political positions during the heady 60s when Mao's appetite for purging his comrades was at its height. As a teenager, Xi Jinping was sent to the countryside to live in a cave. But when Deng came back, he brought back a lot of these people, including Papa Xi and the family. The young Xi Jinping rose through the ranks to become the unrivaled autocrat that we all know and love. The slang also gets directed downwards. Tiong Ardai are the people who remained poverty-stricken while others reaped the rewards of Deng's reforms. A cheeky a new word, one that was used occasionally to refer to my students' parents, is Tuhao. These are the, quote, uneducated, undignified rich who have no idea how to spend their money and thus end up with tacky bling. One way to become Tuhao is to be lucky enough to live in the path of a government construction project and make a mint out of the compensation as your house gets destroyed. In the UK, this is the guy that you read about in The Sun who won the lottery and now spends all his time in hot tubs with nothing on but a gold chain. A prime example in my class would be Mickey's mother, who would turn up to collect her child in a pink princess dress, high heels and a tiara. Will capitalism in China have its moment in the sun and eventually come to an end? The theory goes that, given enough time, the capitalist stage can be transcended. What with single-party power and communist parties' readiness to engage in dramatic events like deliberately flooding entire counties, China may be more capable than most to relinquish capitalism when the time comes. Whether that moment will be forced by the effects of climate change, or the revolution in automated labour, or perhaps a sudden outbreak of utopia, only time will tell. But I think Deng Xiaoping's capitalist cat has a few more lives to live yet. And congratulations to you who made it to the end of this one. It's a bit of a long and rambly episode dealing with the legacy of Deng Xiaoping. It's a legacy that really can't be overstated. The uh, reform and opening up, as they call it, is central to the mythos of modern China. And we also had Liu Xiaoqi um, perishing in the Cultural Revolution, the death of a president, especially after. A few years of persecution and torture is no small thing, of course. And the US companies, which, bless their cotton socks, don't know how to make money in China without undermining their own values on censorship and copyright and such. Only a few days ago, Disney decided to pull one of the Simpsons episodes that it shows on its streaming service in Hong Kong, because it shows something about Tiananmen Square. Obviously, Beijing's not going to like that. And there's a long list of companies and organizations and even countries, and some would say the UN, who make concessions to China's will. And the reason for that is, of course, the economic heft of the country. And the reason for that is, of course, Deng Xiaoping. Yes, it all comes back to Deng. But we did touch on the Cultural Revolution, and uh, that's something which doesn't get talked about so much in modern China. But it's a, another seismic event which defines modern China in many ways. The next time we'll go into that in a little more detail. Because, well, in the, in the story, in the story of me being an English teacher in China, I end up out in the countryside on a bike and wander into a village 
which was actually the setting of one of the permitted operas of the Cultural Revolution. You know, during that time, you couldn't just put anything out on the stage. So that's next time. The Cultural Revolution, or at least an introduction to it. Uh, the Red Guards, the struggle sessions, the bombarding the headquarters, the millions of people in Tiananmen Square cheering on Mao Zedong. Yeah. And all the gruesome, nasty stuff too. So that's next time on Stuck in the Middle Kingdom with you.